Hi, and welcome back to the show. Today, I am joined by Dr. Gleb Tapersky. He is the CEO of Disaster Avoidance Experts, and he has authored four books. The latest book that he has authored and that we're going to talk about today is called Leading Hybrid and Remote Teams. And of course, today we are going to be discussing exactly that. Dr. Gleb is a doctor. Uh, he is a psychologist specializing in workplace behavior. So he is the right man to talk about uh, this evolution that we're seeing in the workplace and across the globe regarding hybrid and remote teams. So I, as always, learned a lot from this conversation and I hope you learn something and of course enjoy it as you go. As always, if you want any of the show notes or any of the links that we discuss, go to outsourceaccelerator.com slash podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Outsource Accelerator. We are the world's leading outsourcing marketplace and advisory. We help big and small businesses with their outsourcing needs and we can help you too. We cover everything from offshore business and staffing strategy, optimal outsourcing structures, implementations, and fully managed services. If you are already outsourcing, about to start, or are somewhere in between, then we can ensure that you get the best from outsourcing. That's the best prices, best terms, and of course, the best results from your offshore operations. The Outsource Accelerator Marketplace now covers over 3,000 outsourcing firms representing a global workforce of over 5 million people. We also host this leading outsourcing podcast, publish inside outsourcing, and have over 15,000 pages of content on the site. Because we span the entire market, we can ensure that you get the best deal possible. Get in touch today. Visit us at outsourceaccelerator.com slash quote. Also, if you find this podcast interesting or valuable, please share it. We have now produced hundreds of episodes featuring the outsourcing world's most prominent luminaries. Please show your support by sharing this podcast today. Dr. Gleb, welcome to the show. And I want to start, Gleb, by asking your opinion on the remote work movement. How do you perceive this whole evolution over the last few years? Well, it won't be a shock to anyone that the last couple of years with the pandemic has been a transformative period for remote work. But let's think about what was happening beforehand. Remote work was something that became increasingly available. And that's part of the reason why the outshoring industry is the way it is, has grown so quickly, even before the pandemic, that remote workers could work globally. And I have clients who I supported, global organizations work in the United States and Singapore, in Britain and Germany. And they all had remote workers because they were separate. There were geographically separated teams and India, of course, outshoring some of their work, Philippines, lots of folks there. And so the 
it was already developing, of course, before the pandemic. We had about, in the United States, if we're looking at the United States itself, the workers who are working remotely in the United States, about 5% of people working full-time remotely. So that's what we see. And we see that as definitely an important dynamic. But before the pandemic, it was 5%, and it grew pretty rapidly before that. So it was in the 1% to 2% range a decade-ish ago, and then it's got to 5%, which is a pretty quick growth. So that's very rapid, if you think about it. Yeah, but, it's huge. Yeah, 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 it's a huge growth. And that's something that was obviously hugely exacerbated by the pandemic. And we had, even before the pandemic, there were a number of challenges that remote workers experienced. And we can talk about that. So we can see research showing that remote workers, while they were more productive than in-office workers, tended to get rewarded less than in-office workers for, in terms of promotion, pay raises, credibility, and so on. So that's a problem. There were already some problems with the remote work revolution before the pandemic. And the pandemic increased and exacerbated all the trends that we've seen. Obviously, with the lockdowns, the March 2020 lockdowns, everyone who could work remotely worked remotely for at least several months. And that's over half of American workers who could work remotely at least a significant amount of the time. Now, what we've seen since that time as vaccines became widely available is a real struggle with, of course, the debate about returning to the office and the challenges that our leaders are experiencing when trying to force remote workers back to the office. At this time, something like around 30-ish percentage of all workdays are worked remotely. So over 30% of all workdays are worked remotely for those workers who can work remotely. So when we're looking at workers who can work remotely, that's a large number. So that, so of large number of workers. And so of all work done in the United States right now, over 30% is done remotely. Meaning so us to summarize that then, and I want to find a little bit about you so that we can introduce you to summarize remote work was sort of bubbling under the surface. It was about 1% 10 years ago, then it rose to about 5%. And then you're saying with the advent of COVID, it suddenly jumped to about 30% of all work, which is on any measure an incredible jump and an incredible change to habits and customs. And it's something, this isn't just some sort of niche outlying kind of pastime. This is employment globally in terms of all of the US market. So it's an incredibly pervasive change to society and customs and cultures and practices, which it's really exciting. And it's great to have you on the show to discuss this today. And certainly you, your career is, it's certainly looks prolific, which I just want to get a bit of an overview of now, but it's really interesting. You seem to be in an absolute hot spot right now to discuss remote work because it's just on the forefront of everyone's mind and attention. And certainly if anyone's planning business or building business, you really have to think about this remote work paradigm now, which before wasn't really on the radar. So super interesting. I suppose, Gleb, to start, do you want to just introduce yourself? You're the CEO of 
disaster avoidance experts, and you are the author of four books, and you're also a doctor, just to add that in. So maybe give a little bit of perspective on who you are and, and your background. Happy to do it. And let's talk about the background. So in my background, I've always been fascinated with decision-making. How do people make decisions? That's been a question of fascination for me ever since I was a kid. And so I saw I was growing up around the dot-com boom. So I was 18 when oh, the dot, in 1999 when companies like pets.com, boo.com, webvan.com, they grew very quickly. And they were praised in the Wall Street Journal. And then just a couple of years later, when I was 21, 2001, 2002, they all went bust. And the leaders were criticized in the Wall Street Journal and the business press. And you know what? The leaders were the same people. They were making these decisions in the same way. It's just that the circumstances changed. And that helped me realize, among one among many things, that we don't know what we're doing when we say people are making good decisions in business or bad decisions in business. And so I decided to study this topic. I got a degree, I got a PhD, looking at the history of behavioral science, how do people make decisions in historical and contemporary settings. And then I focused my career on the future of work. So increasingly over time, that was my focus. How do you make good decisions about the future of work? So looking specifically at the psychology, the decision-making process, how do we make decisions? Why do these, what the, kind of decisions turn out well and what kind of decisions turn out badly. So I got a PhD and I researched this topic and that spent about 15 years in academia, including at UNC Chapel Hill, where I was a lecturer and then a professor at Ohio State in the Decision Sciences Collaborative and history departments here. And all that time, separately from academia, I was also moonlighting as a consultant and a trainer on decision-making in the future of work. So that's how I got working with companies ranging from Aflac to Xerox, so Fortune 500 companies, as well as many startups, larger growing startups, some middle market companies, helping them figure out the future of work in general, and of course, remote work in particular. And by the remote work, I don't mean simply people who work full-time remotely, people who work remotely full or part of the time. So in other words, hybrid workers. And so that's been my fascination. And I wrote a number of books. I'm well, very well known for my global bestseller, Never Go With Your Gut, How Pioneering Leaders Make the Best Decisions and Avoid Business Disasters. That's been translated into many languages, Chinese, German, Korean, Russian, Spanish, French, other languages like that. And my latest book, as you mentioned, is Leading Hybrid and Remote Teams, Benchmarking to Best Practices for Competitive Advantage. So that book, Leading Hybrid and Remote Teams, is the consequence of helping more than 20 companies and other organizations, a couple of municipalities and nonprofits, make the transition to the future of work and figure out their hybrid and remote work plans. So that's the basis for my expertise, and I'll be happy to talk about it further. Fantastic. Let's do that. And my fascination is I come from the perspective of offshoring and outsourcing, and really mm -hmm. that is facilitated or enabled or catalyzed by the remote work movement. Now, these things have been very different or very closely connected. I sort of see them as cousins, really, but certainly without the technology rails of 
that enables remote work, you wouldn't be able to um, fulfill offshore teams or global employment. And I see all of this as a sort of perfect storm of all of the things going right to enable globalizing employment versus what has always historically been the case, which is localized employment. And as for as long as humans have been in any kind of working sort of cooperation, it has always been localized. And now with the advent of technology, it's bringing the world smaller and closer together, which is enabling really a global footprint for organizations. So I find that absolutely fascinating. And this is something that we are really facing, but hasn't really ever sort of been apparent or available to us previously. So it's quite exciting. One thing that kind of fascinates me is COVID forced everyone into this remote paradigm, which was quite an interesting exercise for most businesses. But if it happened 20 years ago, where there wasn't the ability to work remotely, have you ever considered what would have happened then, Gleb? Do you think the whole world would have just gone on hold or do you think they would have pushed through with office-based work? Or do you think that that would have accelerated a different way of working? It's very, it's kind of lucky, convenient really, isn't it? That COVID happened when it did, that we had the technology rails. How would you see a future if or a, a reality if it had happened 20 years ago? I think the reality that is that many, many more workers would have been treated as quote unquote essential, meaning of, or there would have been different category where a much smaller number of workers could do the, their work remotely and they would be doing their work remotely, but that would be, they would depend on things like the fax and the telephone and the early versions of the wor World Wide Web, so the AOL and so on. And maybe, I don't know how many, it would be 5, 10%, 15, no more than 20. Now we have, and we know that over half were able to do their work remotely. So that's a huge amount of workers who would not be able to do their work remotely. And so we will have some essential workers who would have to, who would work throughout waves of the pandemic whether they're police officers, health, or obviously health workers and so on, grocery. And then I would have a different category of workers who need to do their job. To do their job, they need to be in the office. And I think they would be coming into the office just like essential workers. But when the COVID cases were during the heights of the surge, they might be asked to stay home. So that's most likely what would happen. That's my guess. That's my bet. Mm -hmm. Incredible, incredible times. And so what do you see the crux of remote work? Is it just doing the same, but from wherever you want to sit, or is there sort of an essence to remote work that is fundamentally different to office-based alternatives? It's clear to me that at this critical mass level, it's fundamentally different. Now, when you had office, when you had one, two, three, four, 5% of your workforce working remotely, that was mainly individual contributors. That wasn't teams that were working remotely. And there were some organizations that experimented with more large scale remote work, but generally speaking, th these were small businesses, middle-sized businesses. And of course there were, like we talked about before, teams that were of companies that were in India and Singapore and the United States and 
North and Germany at the same time. But those were geographically distanced teams rather than somewhat outshored, right? Of then outsourced and offshore teams rather than remote workers. What's different now, and this is fundamentally important, is that remote workers, people who can work remotely, many, many, many of them want to work remotely and have successfully worked remotely throughout much of the pandemic. And what we're seeing very clearly is that the previous methodology of remote work, which is just people as individual contributors, does not work for teams, does not work for larger masses of workers. And that's a big failure of leadership that so many leaders have been imposing, have been shoehorning traditional methods of office-based collaboration, office-based work into remote and hybrid work. That is the biggest problem that I see right now that is a big, big challenge, big, huge reason why leaders are trying to force people back to the office and aren't realizing the fundamentally, incredibly huge gains that are possible with remote work. It's because leaders are imposing, shoehorning these traditional methods. They're not realizing that these methods are creating a terrible user experience for remote workers, which is undermining their capacity to be as productive, collaborative, and innovative as they would be. So that's what I see as the biggest challenge right now with remote work. And I see it as the biggest challenge for the next several years while reader, leaders get their stuff together and learn how to actually do remote and hybrid work well instead of using traditional methods. Well, I suppose there's no existing playbook, is it? And there's no acknowledged right or wrong way yet because we haven't really done this in all of humankind yet. So I suppose there's a lot of trial and error with this. One thing I'm kind of fascinated by is we've all, or most people have flipped over to the work from home, remote work kind of paradigm, and we haven't seen any longitudinal evidence in terms of the outcomes of res or results of this. For example, the average 20-year-old that is now graduating and coming into the workforce for the first time, if they have their formative professional years working from home, potentially from their bedroom, potentially from a laptop on their legs, are they getting the same formative professional experience, you think, as those from 10 years ago that had to sort of trudge into a central business district and go into a big shiny office tower and learn from their colleagues in person? How do you think that that will play out over the coming decades? So I think the problem there, again, goes back to the user experience, goes back to the methodology that's that are used to onboard junior staff. And we do have very clear, so I talk in my book, Leading Hybrid and Remote Teams, about extensive research-based methodologies for how do you train and onboard and do on-the-job training for junior staff members, so that question. And a lot of other questions which we can delve into. But I would say that there's pretty clear research on some aspects of remote work, for example, of the consequences of them. We know that there was a study at Stanford University that showed that remote workers, even before the pandemic, were more productive than people who are in person. So there was a 
for a company that assigned a bunch of call center employees randomly to, and in collaboration with Stanford University, which was doing the study, assigned some call centers or employees to work remotely and assigned others to work in person. And they found that the people who worked remotely were quite a bit more productive. So substantially more productive in the 10 to 15% range. But the people who worked remotely were also less likely to be promoted and evaluated positively, even if they were more productive. And that again goes to that bias. It's called proximity bias, where people have a predisposition. So the psychology of decision-making and how you make poor decisions, there's a predisposition to like people who are around us and evaluate them unfavorably highly, even though they are less productive than the people who work remotely. And so we know there were some problems already with remote work, but remote work has clearly, we have learned how to do remote work better over the period of the pandemic. So for example, there was research done, this is a combination of Stanford University and the University of Chicago, I believe, which looked at productivity of remote work in comparing it in May 2020, look at it in May 2020. It found that remote workers compared to in-office workers were 5% more efficient. And then it revisited this question in May 2022 with the same population. So kind of a longitudinal study, what you're talking about, Derek, and found that the remote workers were now 9% more efficient than their in-office counterparts. Now, why this increase? Why they increase from 5% more efficient in May 2020 to 9% more efficient in May 2022? Well, because over the two years of the pandemic, we learned how to do remote work better. So some of the you know, te techniques that were clearly egregiously mis <laughs> misdirected, so like Zoom parties, Zoom happy hours, do not work. We can talk about why. But that, that's an example of shoehorning traditional office-based methods into remote work. Zoom happy hours, very bad idea. And we learned some other things about te techniques that can be used. And of course, a lot of investments into IT, which facilitates remote work. Also, investments into the home office of remote workers, which help them do remote work better. So that's how we got to 9% more efficiency for remote workers by May 2022. And what we'll see, uh, yes, go ahead there. Yeah, it's fascinating. And one of my questions was prior to this actually was going to be, is remote work for the benefit of the individual, for the employee that are really sort of calling for this, or is it really for the benefit of the employer? And it seems resoundingly that you have a lot of education, sorry, a lot of research and evidence that it benefits the organization and is more efficient for the worker. But is that the complete Absolutely. picture? Like, are there... Are there downsides to remote work? Is Are there instances where it is not so efficient and it would be better for people to come into the office? For example, Elon mm -hmm. Musk said he wants everyone in because there is no creativity when people are sitting at home. And has any of your research or studies or is there any evidence pointing towards downsides for remote? There's definitely some research pointing to downsides for remote when you do them in the way that Elon Musk does them using, again, traditional methods. If you try to brainstorm, give you an example, let's talk about innovation. So we clearly see that remote work is better for productivity. So people are quite a bit more efficient working remotely. 
And we have this, I'll give another study. This was a random assignment control study for a company called Trip.com, which is the largest, as you can imagine, it's a booking agency, largest booking agency in the China and Asia Pacific area. It assigned a bunch of its staff randomly to work, some to work full-time in the office and some to work part-time remotely, so hybrid work. And they found that the people who were working remotely over a period of six months, and this was something like, this was at the start of 2022, I believe is when they published the study. So the study was done in late 2021. And they found that the remote workers, that the people who are working part-time remotely, so hybrid workers, not even full-time remote workers, remote workers were unquestionably more productive. So for example, programmers, produced 8% more lines of code, which is a very, very hard measure of productivity. Now you think about soft measures like self-reporting or other ways of measuring productivity, but that's a very hard measure of productivity. 8% more code, that, that's the standard of how productive software engineers are. And you also found that you had 35% more retention. So over a third more people retained when they're working remotely at least part of the time. So we very clearly see that remote work is beneficial in many ways for the employer and for the employee, because of course people want remote work. There are extensive studies showing that when people are offered remote work, over 85% of them will want remote work, at least part-time. So either hybrid or fully remote work. So that's some statistics of evaluation of evidence. And let's talk about innovation. So you asked about innovation. We know that traditional methods for innovation don't work very well when you use them in remote settings. For example, traditional synchronous brainstorming, when you get on a, you sit in a room and you shoot ideas at each other, that works great in a room, but does not work very well over a Zoom call. And so when Elon Musk says, oh, liking innovation, everyone get back. To the office. It's because, again, trying to shoehorn traditional methods, bad UX, bad user experience into hybrid and remote work. What works much better are techniques like virtually synchronous brainstorming. And they wrote about an article about this for the Harvard Business Review. So kind of citing a bunch of research about this topic. And I'll quickly summarize it. The traditional brainstorming has a number of benefits, but it also has a number of downsides. One of the biggest downsides is called production blocking. That's when you have an idea, but somebody else has an idea and they're talking about the idea and you don't want to interrupt them. And so you lose track of your idea. Happens very frequently in brainstorming meetings, especially for people who are more introverted and for more junior members of the team, lower status members of the team. Another problem is called evaluation apprehension, where you're worried about sharing an idea that might criticize implicitly criticize some members of the team or might be too off out of the box idea. And so again, you don't share that idea. And it's especially a problem for people who are more pessimistic and people who are more junior. Another problem is called social loafing, where the more people there are in a room generating ideas, the less ideas are generated because our brains are lazy, and so we feel that, well, if other people are generating ideas, I don't have to work as hard. And so you actually see clearly research that the more people are in a brainstorming sessions, the less ideas you have generated. The best number of people 
for brainstorming for the sake of generating the most ideas per person is two. <laughs> and so there was a methodology developed to address some of these problems already in the early 1990s. So long before remote work, it wasn't to address remote work. It was to address the problems with traditional brainstorming. And that Harvard Business Review article, I described how to adapt it to how to hybrid and remote work, so remote settings, and how I used it with a number of companies to help them gain an innovation advantage for remote work and helping them decide to actually extensively implement remote work for their teams. So here's the methodology. You first have everyone separately, remotely, generate ideas about the topic and put them into a tool like Google Forms or Mural. So input them into the form. And that is quite helpful. It addresses production blocking because now every everyone is can share all of the ideas they have. It's asynchronous, so you can spread it over a week or two weeks, or you can compress it into an hour or something like that. So you can have as much more time for people who want to take more time, for people who are pessimistic and who are introverted, who need more time to process ideas. You can also make it anonymous, or at least par or partially anonymous, so that only the leader can see the people's names who submitted ideas, or you can make it fully anonymous. But mostly, I usually with companies, when we run this, we make it only the leader able to see people's names for contributions. And that addresses evaluation apprehension, where people are worried about being judged. And of course, social loafing is also addressed because you're the only individual generating ideas, and the leader is going to see the number of ideas that you generated. So there's that incentive. That's the first step. The second step, after all the ideas are generated, and just the leader cleans them up, takes out the names, separates them, has a list. Let's say you're using Google Forms, which I frequently use. So you have a spreadsheet of, let's say, 40 ideas generated for a specific topic. Then the second step is evaluation. So what you do is you have everyone using an anonymous account on Google Forms. So you give all of them a spreadsheet, a version, a copy of that Google spreadsheet. And then they rate each idea on a scale of one to five on the several categories. What I usually do is something like how exciting it is, how practical it is, how much of a fit it is to the problem. And then also leave any comments that they want. And so by the end of it, let's say you have six people, you have ratings for each one that go from, from zero to 30 for all the ratings that people give and a number of comments. And so the leader aggregates the ratings and the comments, and then, and again, these are all anonymous, so there's no worries about evaluation apprehension. And the final step is a meeting, a synchronous meeting. So it can be for fully remote teams. I recommend I mean, they do it on Zoom or similar platform. For hybrid teams, I recommend that they come to, come to meet in person because there's certainly benefits to meeting in person to discuss these issues for bilingual and so on. We can talk about that. But the meeting is going to be not that challenging from a perspective of people who are introverted or pessimistic or junior people, because you have all the ideas already rated and evaluated, and you can very clearly see which are the best ideas and which ideas have floated to the top. And so you choose three to five ideas and decide on implementing them on the next steps and who's responsible, what resources are dedicated to that, and so on. And the great thing about it is that you still have a whole bunch of other ideas. So maybe 
there were 15 good ideas and you can only implement five of them. You put the rest of the 10 into an idea bank. Maybe some of these ideas aren't great for, aren't the best to implement now, but they'll be great in six to 12 months. And so you get an idea bank of ideas that you generated and that you can save up for later. And this methodology has been really shown to be highly effective. It produces more ideas and more novel ideas for various problems, for innovation of various sorts by, as rated by third-party ex external evaluators. So more ideas and more novel ideas. So no, there's no problem for innovation in remote work and hybrid work when you don't shoehorn traditional office-centric methods like, like synchronous brainstorming into remote and hybrid teams. And what about those magical moments and the essence of collaboration where you're all in a room or even you're having after work drinks and you're just sort of mulling over stuff and there's serendipity and there's synergies and, you know, things are happening. And are we going to lose a little bit of that in all of these sort of process asynchronous remote kind of applications? Oh, no question. Yes. So some of that stuff will definitely be lost. So what I, what of the... 21 by now companies that I helped transition, what they do, what we did for them, 20 of them chose to adopt the hybrid first model, meaning most of their workers are coming to the office one day a week, maybe some are coming two days. But one day a week is more than enough for maintaining culture, a sense of connection, for social engagement, for collaboration, for going out for drinks afterward. And then a minority of the workers, a substantial minority at each company are fully remote. So something like maybe it depends on the company. So for example, there's a high-tech manufacturing company that's a Fortune 500, where I think something like 10% of their workforce is fully remote, which is, and much of the rest is hybrid, but oh, there are plenty of people who are essential workers who have to be on the shop floor. So yes, 10% of their workforce is fully remote. There are other companies where more like 40% of their workforce is fully remote, like SaaS companies, software as a service, where you can do so much of your work remotely and they, can, they had a lot of benefits in hiring remote workers elsewhere, outsourcing, offshoring, obviously that they didn't have to use their the more highly paid workers who live near large cities where you know, they need higher cost of living of wages or countries that, that are more cost of living. And uh, there was one company that did choose to have a home-centric model, meaning fully remote work and just using its office for a meeting space for rare needs or training, but that's yeah, just pretty rare. So that's one company. And that happened because something like over 85% of its staff wanted fully remote work. That's unusual. When you look at what people want, most people, so maybe something like, depending on the survey for companies, something like 20 to 40% want fully remote work. And maybe something like oh, 60 to 70, 50 to 70 want oh, hybrid work coming in less than half the week usually, and then something like 10 to 15% want full-time in-office work, usually because they don't have a home office environment that's comfortable for them, or they've grown up, they've had their professional career in a way that 
they're so used to working in the office. That's just how they want to continue their professional career. But you'll see yeah, going back. And if you did the survey the other way, because, you know, and I'm not anti work at all. Mm -hmm. And of course, businesses are their people. There is nothing without the the people, you have no business. So of course you have to appease the workers and move in the direction of that. But if businesses were to take a survey and for their own interests only, for their own efficiency and cost wasn't an issue and consideration of workers' interests wasn't an issue, do you think that businesses would opt for work from home or do you think that they would work for opt for in office? What I see pretty clearly is that businesses that are adopting UX methodologies that, that have learned how to do remote work correctly, remote and hybrid work correctly, are unquestionably adopt, going for a hybrid modality with some of their workers working full-time remotely and most of their workers working hybrid. But that depends on the business learning how to work together remotely well. Yeah. When you have, and I assume as well, it, it also depends on the type of business. I mean, if you're making, I don't know, steam engines, you probably need a lot of people in the office. Yeah. Whereas if you are a SaaS in Silicon Valley, it's not so necessary. So I suppose there's, there's a lot of factors there. And Gleb, where do you see if we take this trajectory for, as you say, this is only, it's kind of been bubbling under the surface for five or 10 years and technology wasn't there prior to that. Then we had this incredible sort of conversion with COVID. Where do you see this, the trajectory of this in 20 years with the advancement of technology and then also the sort of behavioral changes setting in as we go into sort of second or third generations that have known no different. Where do you, like, fast forward 20 years, what is the work environment like? Would you suggest it's mostly asynchronous remote? I would suggest that most people are going to still be, we're talking about people who can work, who can work fully remotely. So let's limit it to those people, let's say knowledge workers and so on. Oh, and by the way, I, I did mention the company that the high-tech manufacturer, they don't make steam engines, they make other forms of engines, but they do have 10% of their workforce working full-time remotely and most of the rest working hybrid. So people who can work uh, remotely. And of course, some people have to be on the shop floor. Now, talking specifically about people who can work full-time remotely, which for the American workforce, that's something like, I mean, looking at surveys, it's in the low 50% range. So maybe 55%, something like that. Of So that's a, obviously a huge number of people. Of those people, I think that we'll see, of that fraction of people, we'll probably see something like 30% something like 25 to 30% working full-time remotely and including people who are coming into the workforce right now who don't want to work in the office and whose whole career is spent working remotely and who are very comfortable with that. So I think we're going to see that. I think we'll also see more people who are currently out of the workforce being willing to join the workforce because they can work full-time remotely, especially mothers who can who would be able to now maintain their jobs rather than leaving to take care of kids because unfortunately still mothers bear the majority of the childcare burden as well as other folks who need more time so they can work more, more people can work, which is definitely beneficial. And we'll see much more 
outshoring and offsourcing of various sorts going on because businesses will realize that this is a future where they can definitely gain a lot of benefit by hiring workers who are remote and the talent is not only in the United States, but around the world. So that's of those people who are working remotely, but 30% that I mentioned, many of them, many of the jobs will be filled by talented people from outside the U.S. as well. And of course, people in the U.S. will also be working remotely for companies outside the U.S. that want talented experts and specifically having more of an American mindset and access to the culture. Malin Wake, the founder and CEO of WordPress, he is a huge proponent for distributed workforces. And of course, WordPress itself has many thousands of employees that are all remote or distributed. He actually warns against hybrid environments. He says they all have to be remote or they all have to be in the office because of the things like the proximity bias. And, mm -hmm. you know, what are your, what's your take on that? And as you mentioned yourself, people can be overlooked for things like promotions if they are remote versus in the office. So that's kind of part one of the question. Part two of the question is, does this, as we push this trajectory forward 20 years, will it create a, a double-class society where those people that have to work in an office and maybe even the Starbucks baristas, do they become second-class citizens because they are tied to their locality as opposed to knowledge workers that are far more free projecting 20 years forward do you think that this can create a dual class more than there is at the moment so about the wordpress ceo i think it's definitely i understand where he's coming from if you use traditional methods right you'll definitely get proximity bias you will you very clearly see that managers especially older managers so when you look at surveys on proximity bias and so on you see that Managers over 50 have a much stronger liking for people who are in the office and managers under 50 have much more ability to ev evaluate appropriately people who are working remotely. So I think this is partly a generation issue. And if we talk about 20 years down the road, the managers who are over 50 will be over 70 and most of them will be out of the workforce. So that's kind of one dynamic that we want to be thinking about that many that in 20 years, people who are currently uh, very oppos opposed to this traditionalist and so on, most of them will be out of the workforce and younger people who are more sympathetic to this will be in leadership positions of all sorts. So that's one dynamic. Now, the other dynamic in terms of proximity bias and him saying we have to have all in person or all remotely, that's, I think, a problematic approach to this. Proximity bias is discrimination like any other form of discrimination. Now, would you go ahead and say that, well, in order to address the problem of black people being discriminated against, we just won't hire any black people and therefore there won't be discrimination, right? When I say this, is this it's obviously ridiculous. No, what you need to do is, of course, hire black people and fight the discrimination, address that unconscious bias, those biased perceptions, that racist perceptions that cause discrimination. In the same way, when you have discrimination against people who are coming in, who are remote, who are that dynamic and with a hybrid dynamic, that is something you need to fight. You need to address that discrimination, that bias, rather than 
just say, well, whatever, we won't hire any black people or we won't have, hire any hybrid workers. Because we clearly see that hybrid workers definitely have a lot of benefits in terms of solving a number of problems with remote work that are real. So high, remote workers definitely have less sense of a connection to organizational culture overall. And I'm not saying every remote worker, but on average, less connection to organizational culture, less in engagement and trust with other team members. Again, one from all remote workers, but on the all, overall, on average, there's definitely benefit. And there's benefit to collaborating and seeing each other, building trust, building connections. And the last meeting of the brain, synchronous brainstorming, I recommend that people have in person if they can. And there's other various forms of collaboration that I talk about in the book that are can be definitely done remotely, but can also have some benefits from being done in person. So leading hybrid and remote teams is the book. So what I see as the future is companies not stopping shoehorning traditional methods, you know, work methods, office-centric methods into hybrid and remote work and learning how to fight proximity bias. And there are definitely methods to fight it. The easiest way to fight it is what I have all my companies do that I help is instead of just having sets, in just as, instead of having a schedule saying, well, everyone do what you want and come in whenever, or like at least one or two days a week, something like that. And then some people can come in more often and therefore get in the boss's good side. What we have in companies is a team-led modality. So instead of saying the leader decides on like the two, three days that everyone comes in, we have team leaders. So again, instead of the C-suite, the CEO deciding on these days, we have team leaders of rank and file teams, six to eight people teams on the lower level, lowest possible level, deciding what works best for their team. Because of course, each team has different needs. So you should never say everyone comes in the same amount of days. Each team has different needs for coming into the office and different requirements. So each team lead decides that our team, on average, everyone comes in one day for the company. Some teams decide they need to come in, let's say two days. So for example, sales managers often have people come in two days because they find it beneficial to have sale outbound sales yeah. calls. So, so you're saying it, it takes sort of a conscious effort to basically manage the differences is what I'm understanding. It just takes, yes. so as it opposed takes to things just effort. happening naturally, you've got to actually consciously build routines around acknowledging that there is this sort of work and home divide that needs to be brought together. So yeah, no, it's fascinating, isn't it? And it's, it's something that we all need to face as an organization. And I think as there is change and there is most definitely massive change happening around this as you say as i think you've identified with a lot of these different models it takes conscious aware management of these differences and not just when you're in your routines you can kind of just bumble through stuff and everyone knows what they're doing but as we're going through this metamorphosis now it just takes more of a conscious change and then the use of tools to assist with that with that change so certainly Incredible stuff. Thank you so much, Dr. Glenn. And just to reiterate your book, Leading Hybrid and Remote Teams is out. And I would encourage everyone to take a look at that. Thank you so much for your time. If anyone wants to reach out and wants to know more about what you do, how can they get in touch? 
happy to again leading hybrid remote teams that's a book that's available everywhere just google it you'll see it on amazon and so on the description of the book is going to be on my website called disasteravoidanceexperts.com forward slash hybrid so disasteravoidanceexperts.com forward slash hybrid to learn more about the book my own expertise is going to be featured on that website disasteravoidanceexperts.com with blogs podcasts video casts online courses you can get a free online course on making the wisest decisions on the future of work at disasteravoidanceexperts.com forward slash subscribe. So again, free online course on making the wisest decisions on the future of work at disasteravoidanceexperts.com forward slash subscribe. Fantastic. Thanks for your time and your insights. And it really is something that can empower an organization and something that actually organizations can't afford to to not focus on right now because it really is changing really fast and the workforce are demanding this change as well. A very timely and topical subject. That was Dr. Gleb Tepersky. If you want any of the show notes, go to outsourceaccelerator.com slash podcast. And as always, if you want to ask us anything, then just send us an email to ask at outsourceaccelerator.com. See you next time.